Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease and a neurologist and a therapist and a neurophysio, a urologist, a pharmacist, and a GP. And you have me. <laughs> yeah, come on, Larry. Don't forget about your wife. <laughs> okay, so this is when life gives you Parkinson's. Uh, joining me on the podcast journey is my wife and partner in Parkinson's, Rebecca Gifford, and reporter and contributor, Nikki Reitmeyer. Hi. Uh, you guys You guys remember a couple of episodes ago, we talked about firing your neurologist. Yes, of course. Yeah, well, this episode is about building a relationship with your neurologist and all the other members of your care team, even your partner and your friends. Ah, well, it seems like with all the adjustments that you need to make from day to day that, you know, you really do want to be on good terms with those people, those core people who can help you. It is important, I think. And Dr. Rachel Dolan from the Michael J. Fox Foundation said as much when she was on the podcast in episode two of the season. How important is chemistry between the doctor and the person with Parkinson's? This is an extremely important part of your care. So especially in Parkinson's, where you're having a long-term relationship with your doctor, it's really important to have somebody you can talk to openly and honestly, somebody who listens to you. You know, Parkinson's is really all about expressing how things are going on a daily basis, how your medicines are or aren't working, how new symptoms are coming up or symptoms are changing. And, you know, it's not like other diseases where we can take a measurement and adjust your medication based on that. We adjust things based on what you tell us. So that communication and that relationship, which, as I said, is a long-term one, is really critical. We adjust things based on what you tell us. Uh huh. So if you hide your symptoms or downplay the impact something is having on your life to make the doctor think you're better than you are, your neurologist can't read your mind and won't be able to help you. Mm-hmm. And that really comes down to trust. Yeah. And I mean, hey, you trust Dr. Squires, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. One of the very first things he said was, as an industry and as physicians, we are really bad at diagnosing Parkinson's. Immediately, I began to trust him because he was willing to talk about what he doesn't know. I want to help you. I'm going to use everything that I can to help you. But here's what we don't know. Here's what we can. We would really like to know. And let's just work as a team and figure this out. Absolutely. And I really hear that. And when we hear those conversations that you guys have together, that honesty and openness in conversation. Well, we're going to get more of that today because we just had a telehealth update. Ooh. Are you excited? I am excited. <laughs> so Rebecca and I got together before the Zoom call and we wrote down the top things that were of concern to us. And then we met with Dr. Squires and we recorded the whole conversation with his permission. And we'll play portions of it to give you an idea of how I advocate for myself during my appointments with him. And, you know, he's going to sound a little bit like Charlie from Charlie's Angels, since I'm recording <laughs> through the speaker of the computer onto an iPhone. But, you know, that just adds to the coolness factor of Dr. Squires. Um, <laughs> he starts by asking me open-ended questions. So how have things been? How have things been? Um, well, the neuropathy is as bad as it's been, uh, and it's pretty constant. It does ebb and flow in intensity, but it's kind of constant pain in my feet, my toes, like the toes just kind of go straight out. Um, and it's, it can be, it can range from a three to a 10, <laughs> like 
sometimes where it's just like I feel like my foot is going to be like it feels like it's on fire and it's in extreme pain. Okay. Uh, and I can't figure out why it ebbs and what causes it to be more or less. Yeah. All right. And how's your balance? Um, I would say pretty good, although there are occasions where I can't, I seem to be bumping into things more. How would you describe it? It depends on where you are on your medication, because often if I see you kind of flailing a little bit more, unaware, kind of moving your body more, less carefully, then I usually know that's how you're starting, you're off your medication, you forgot your dosage. Yeah, it's usually like the last, like the, so I think every three hours, and so like after the second hour, that final hour is, it can be less, less graceful. Got it. Yeah, but not falling over, not completely losing balance, just just kind of awkward. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you find that if you have your eyes closed, like if you dunk your head under in the shower or anything like that, you have to steady yourself? Oh, for sure. That's fairly typical for sens- sensation loss, unfortunately, because your brain is getting information from your feet constantly about how you're oriented in space, and if that the messages aren't going through properly, then you compensate for it with your vision, like you said, and as soon as you close your eyes, the wheels come off. Yeah, so I, I find I probably have to brace myself a couple of times every time I take a shower. Cool. And then the, what are you taking for the levodopa these days? How are you taking that? Uh, so I'm taking two and a half in the morning, the 150, or was it 100 over 25? Uh, and then I take, uh, every three hours I take two, uh, and then at night, I take one of the um, regular and then two of the extended release. And I took my last dose at 8.30, and then I started getting sort of disconnected about 9.10. I don't know why. I was, maybe I'm nervous for you. <laughs> the disconnection of being more present is relatively new, though, right? I'd say the last month, month and a half. Mm-hmm. Is it mostly sort of the rocking, drunk stuff? Yeah. Sometimes it's a jerky head. And when you're on, how are things? I guess in general, I feel like it's... um, I'm I'm more affected with my um, executive function and my uh, my ability to communicate. You mean with your on and off? Ago. Yeah, well, I mean, just in general, like, I feel like even if I'm on, it's still, those things are still troublesome. Oh, I see. So the physical symptoms are more affected, but the... Yeah, but even, even fine motor, like, my writing is getting worse again, and my, you know, my ability to move my mouse around with control, and um, you even took the knife away from me the other night. <laughs> He was trying to chop, and it was frightening. <laughs> it's like, you do not have control. <laughs> So that's relatively, I'd say, new in the last month where, like, my fine motors are now, I feel like it was really helped by the, by the levodopa, and now it's not as. Mm-hmm. What happened a month ago? It seems like there's a lot of things worse over the past month. So, well, uh, there's um, more stress, probably, I think, with work. There's, it's just really busy time, and um, yeah. it's, it's, it's been a lot more emotional in our house, I think. Yeah, changes in the house with, cause Henry went back to school full time, a new school. 
just lots of and our lifestyle and patterns and schedules are all shifting. Okay, you really got a lot going on here. And it seems like stress really does affect your symptoms. Oh, yeah. Stress is a, you know, well, you know, it's a, it's a huge factor. It's, uh, it amplifies everything, uh, all the symptoms. I, I just love how, you know, he kind of hones in right on the issue. He goes, so uh, what, what happened a month ago? <laughs> <laughs> I love that he picked up on that. And, and we hadn't even gotten to everything yet. <laughs> Yeah, I thought he that it was really interesting, some of the insights he had about Parkinson's and the eyes, which I'd never heard of when you told him your eyesight was getting worse. People with Parkinson's can get, well, anybody can, but it's more common with Parkinson's, get a lovely thing called convergence insufficiency. I don't know if you come across that. No, but it sounds delightful. <laughs> um, so convergence is the what we call the reflex when, he, when when we're reading, the eyes have to come in like this to focus up close. So that's the convergence response. Um, and it can happen that the, 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 the reflex pathway gets a bit weak. So after a while, as you've been reading, the eyes start to tire and then they start to drift apart a little bit. And then your vision will blur and then double. Um, and then the other thing, people with Parkinson's tend to get dry eye because you don't blink as often. And then as the, when the eyes get dry, then the, the cornea becomes rough and then it scatters the light a little bit. So you can get a bit blurred, but that usually gets better if you, you know, if you blink a few times and spread the tear film around. Okay. Um, but your eye doctor should be able to test you pretty easily for convergence insufficiency. It's really just a matter of um, what they do is they show you a, a tiny letter E on a stick and have you focus on the E and bring the E slowly closer to your eyes and see how long it takes before your eyes pop apart. Because okay. at some point, all of us, you can only keep the image single for so long. And then when it starts to double, your eyes just kind of come apart. And um, depending how far away from your face that happens, they can tell whether you have convergence insufficiency or not. Okay. There are ways to make it better, but it's um, what are called pencil push-ups where you take a pen or a pencil, hold it at arm's length and focus on the, the nib of the pen and then bring it slowly closer to your face while focusing on keeping it single. And then as soon as it goes double, you cross your eyes. Okay. Okay. Do that 10 times, 10 times every day and it helps a little bit, but it's yet one more exercise. That's what I can do while I'm on a conference call. <laughs> yeah. And they, they can put prisms in your glasses as well to help um, just bend the light a little bit. But the issue is that over time, as my optometrist put it, your eyes kind of eat the prism and mm. you habituate to the prism and then you go double again and you need a stronger prism and then you go double again and you need a stronger prism. And so, soon you've got like diamonds in your eyes. Yeah, basically. basically. <laughs> um, and it, as well, it's it, the, the prism can affect your distance vision, so you, you, then you would need like dedicated reading glasses, and then if you have far vision issues, you need separate yeah. glasses. So I have to go, Doctor Squires. I'm um, I'm starting my I'm leading one of my workshops for the wellness program in a few minutes. So yeah, Thanks for doing it. yeah. Um, so good yep. luck. Have fun. Yep. We're just gonna chat. Okay. Have a good chat. Thanks. Okay. Um, how's the bladder working? Um, I have to always sit down, uh, regardless, just because 
uh, of um, it, it's an inconsistent stream and it's hard to control. Uh, I find that if I want to empty my bladder, it's um, it means a it's a commitment. Okay, so obviously there's some stuff that doctors want to ask you about in private, because I love how as soon as Rebecca went away, Dr. Squires immediately goes, okay, so how's the bladder? (laughs) (laughs) What's going on down there? (laughs) Tell me about that. And he could have asked that in front of my wife. That's not, uh, there's, there's no secrets there. Um, and, and the eyes discussion is is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, you know, I, I didn't know Parkinson's could give you double vision. I didn't either. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah, I, 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 I discovered it on my own. Uh, but this is why this disease is so hard to diagnose. So many sy- systems can be impacted. I know you've told Dr. Squires about neuropathy and balance. You're having more dyskinesia. Your executive function and communication are troublesome. Fine motor skills are getting worse. I mean, the list is going on and on. Rebecca's hiding the kitchen knives from you now. (laughs) If you didn't write all that down, I'm not sure, honestly, how you'd remember that all. I know it's it's really hard for me to keep track of it all, and I don't have a degenerative <laughs> brain disease. Yeah, and, and then you have to order it and figure out well what's what what is what is the most bothersome of those symptoms, and make sure that that's what you address first. Because you know because there's so many, he can't address everything, right? Mm-hmm. But next comes the fun part, which is addressing the issues, and we get to update the prescriptions. Um, I think if the neuropathy is what's bothering you the most it makes sense to try to tackle that first um, and that could be trying to increase the gabapentin and just seeing because you're already on that yeah. rather than having a total new medication trying to optimize that first either we could go either way I mean if, if you didn't have the, the apathy on top of things that were making things extra complicated I would say let's just write out the gabapentin but if you um want to try to tackle all of those things at the same time, then having lemofaxine and duloxetine would be reasonable. Okay. Um, lemofaxine is also a bit activating, so that might be a reasonable option for it. The, the dose has to go up a little bit before you, it, it, um, it affects um, serotonin, norepinephrine, and dopamine reuptake, but you have to get the dose up above a certain threshold to get all of those effects in place. So you need to go up to like 150 milligrams a day, I think is the, Magic number. Okay. So let's do it. Why not? What's another drug, Doc? What's another drug? I know. I, I, we listened to your um, latest podcast, Driving Up North, so <laughs> it heard your, um, your pharmaceutical count. <laughs> like, I've done that to this man. <laughs> um, yes. Yes, you have. Yes. We've done it together. We've done it together. It's true. And then did you up the gabapentin? To uh, 900 three times a day. Okay. Which is the maximum dose on that one. Whoa, maximum dose. Jeez, Larry. Do you get like a prize or something here? I think so. Here? I think I get like a big teddy bear or something. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm waiting. You've won maximum dose. It's like reaching the final level of a video game. Right. You can go no further. Maximum dose. 
You know, I've said it before, though, and I'll say it again. He really is so inclusive in the process of how he goes about updating your prescriptions. It's really a conversation with you as opposed to, you know, it's not an order. It's a conversation. Uh, which is nice. And he explains things and, you know, yeah. sort of, you know, here's the side effects. Here's the positive. Here's the negative. You know, yeah, it is a conversation, which is the way I like it. I can just imagine him and his partner driving around listening to the podcast. I love that they pay attention to that and that he they enjoy that. Yeah, so true. Did you ask him what he thought of the podcast? Well, I asked him what he thought of me. No, I, Yeah, of course I did. <laughs> I, you know, I'm not going to let that opportunity go by. I think it's great. I mean, um, this particular, I mean, it was very interesting for me as well, because I think most physicians don't ever hear a patient candidly talking about their experience with the care that they've received. So I think as a physician, I think that's a useful experience to go through, having that feedback. I think the the awareness that you're raising about issues, I think is really great um, about things because I think like you rightly pointed out, a lot of a lot of Parkinson's disease is invisible and often <clears throat> discounted and not um, emphasized a lot of the non-motor stuff um and i think it, it's good to to highlight those struggles that people have day to day that's so cool that he listens and that he finds value in it i thought that was interesting too and i hadn't really thought of uh that when a doc you know, your doctor's listening to you talk you know honestly about him or her uh that that would be something that they'd never heard before most doctors don't get that opportunity. Yeah, that kind of feedback. Well, and I can imagine it takes a bit of courage as well for him to be so open and willing to be recorded during the appointments. And I, I think that that's, I appreciate his willingness to be vulnerable with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I'm curious, he maxed you out on gabapentin, which could help you sleep. What else did he tell you about sleep? I know you haven't been sleeping well recently. Uh, good question. The other thing that can help with sleep, um, there are some studies about bright light therapy for Parkinson's disease. Okay. Particularly for that mid-afternoon wall. Oh, okay. Because the circadian rhythm, the body clock, is dysregulated in Parkinson's as well. Just to add to the list of havoc that it causes on your brain. So what? How? So do you do... Um... Do you just have it on while you're working or for how long? Yeah. So the, what, there have been a few different studies done. One of them is like an hour, twice a day, one in the noon. Um, so first thing in the morning, one of my, my colleague, um, Dr. Valerio, who's a movement and sleep trained mm-hmm. neurologist, he usually recommends people do like 15, 20 minutes in the morning. He finds that people benefit from that. But I know one of the studies was an hour, twice a day. And you don't have to have it beaming right in your face. It's enough just to have it on in the background. Okay. Like um, sunlight is the, the best, but of course we're going into that time of the year when we don't right. have any of that. Um, but it, but it, there have been a few studies that show that it helps with daytime sleepings. Okay, good. And it might help with even nighttime sleep because it will have, it does help restore the more normal circadian rhythm. And we are all programmed to nap in the early afternoon. There is a little surge of melatonin that, that comes on after lunch, um, which is why civilized countries like Spain and Mexico have a siesta. Um, civilized countries thank <laughs> you um, but our um, culture obviously isn't geared towards that we're more like work all day type of thing so um, but we are naturally supposed to be sleepy at that time of the day um, and for, with with Parkinson's it's just it's you like a truck 
Yeah, it does. Like, literally, you can't keep your eyes open. Like, yeah. you can't function. Right. And then, of course, the medications that, that I've been pumping you full of also, most of them cause fatigue and sleepiness and side effects. So, awesome. I know. Okay, those lights that you use for light therapy, I have one of those at my desk at work, which, of course, I haven't seen now in like eight or nine months because of this little thing called a global (laughs) pandemic. But I used to turn it on every single morning when I would go into work, especially on those really dark winter mornings. I don't know if it ever really worked, though, or if it was, you know, just me turning on a light at my desk every single day, but it would be really cool if it did work. And it's interesting to hear that they're talking about how it could help with Parkinson's. Yeah, well, now I have one at my desk at home, and I turned it on twice a day and uh, just started this week. So uh, it's it's not kicked in yet, but, you know, listen, it's, only, it's not even been a full week yet. So we'll just keep trying it and uh, see how it goes. Right. And especially like the doctor said, in the winter time when there's not as much sunlight out, we're getting those shorter days. Couldn't hurt. Right. Right. Uh, Beck, have you have you ever used the light therapy? We've had this for a while. I have. I usually use it towards the end of the winter when ah. I really start to feel that SAD kick in. Just desperately missing the sunshine it's been maybe a month it's been raining and cold for two weeks right (laughs) and it it just it just helps to I do notice a slight difference a a little uptick in in my mood and my energy level maybe if I'd start using it more regularly I wouldn't need it so desperately come March (laughs) (laughs) the thing that I was surprised by and I I guess I, I hadn't really used one uh, I, I always thought you had to like sit in front of it and let it like bathe you, mm-hmm. but you, but it doesn't need to be so direct. I wish I would have heard that previously because sitting at my desk, I had the thing like three inches from my face. <laughs> I thought I needed sunglasses. <laughs> well, now you know. Burning your retinas. And- right. <laughs> I think it's working. <laughs> yeah. I'm blind, but I feel yeah. better. <laughs> Now, so you have the the light therapy happening, and how many prescriptions are you on for Parkinson's-related issues? Uh, Seven now. Whoa, seven. Wow. And do you just take whatever he suggests? Well, it's a conversation, as you said before, Um, Mm -hmm. and it's important to advocate for ourselves with our doctors. So uh, we take the list of concerns, and we're sure they get addressed. And if you're uncomfortable with anything, uh, you just say no. No. Well, honey, when have you said no to Dr. Squares? Have you done that? I did. And I don't think I told you this, but he he brought up agonists after you left our last session. Um, And uh, here's how that went. Adding a little whiff of the dopamine agonists like primipexil sometimes helps with wearing off and also can help with apathy a little bit. um, What, what What are your general thoughts on agonists? Well, I don't use them a lot. Certainly as monotherapy, but as a as an add-on in small doses, then they can be helpful for people. But I wouldn't do more than like 0.25 or pixel three times a day. That probably would be about as high as I would go. Or, or sometimes I use probably retigotine a bit more even. Um, some people think maybe there's a little less impulse control disorder with retigotine compared to the other two, but it's not that well established um, and there is some data from Japan that it might help with freezing a bit better than the other two. Um, I, I think they have their role, but the side effects are certainly problematic. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I've heard some horror stories, and so yeah, for sure. And getting people, I, I, you know, I, I inherit people who've got Parkinson's for a long time. Sometimes, especially when I go up north, and getting people off of dopamine agonists when they have problems is a is a real problem. Well, yeah, because you have to slowly do that because of it, it, it's. I, I've taken over a year sometimes for to transition people off of it and onto the dopa and. Um, some of the severe postural changes, like I've got a poor guy up north who's bent over almost 90 degrees at the waist, and you know you can't necessarily blame the agonist for that, but he was on Rapinarol for years. Um, is that and that, is that because people are still fearful that uh, you're going to run out of the ability to for levodopa to be effective? There's some of that, um, and you know even when I was in medical school, which second year medical school for me was probably 2008 and it was still the dogma back then that if you're under 70 with Parkinson's you start with an agonist and if you're over 70 you start with levodopa and so some neurologists who've been around for a little longer still still sort of follow that paradigm um, I think most movement disorder specialists now unless people are very young um, mostly just default to levodopa mm-hmm. works better as fewer side effects but um, I know I, you know, I remember earlier this year, before all this happened, um, I was at a, teaching at a course with Ron Pastuma, and he was kind of lamenting the fact that, you know, we stopped using it and we started to introduce it back in a little bit as well, just because, especially if there's a little bit of, some people gives them a little bit of energy and helps with that apathy, but um, but he's using it as an add-on, which I think is what most, which is what most of us do. Yeah, let's hold off on that. I'm, I'm yeah. weary of the agonist. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. With, with good reason. Okay, so I've looked this up, and I even did a school project on agonists once, specifically dopamine agonists. And essentially, they're medications that work by imitating the actions of dopamine when levels are low. So an agonist is a type of drug that activates the receptors on the brain, the opposite of that being an antagonist. And these medications improve condition-related symptoms by kind of fooling the brain into thinking that dopamine is available. And there are some risk factors. They include heart attack, stroke, Mm -hmm. increase in restless leg syndrome, hallucinations, low blood pressure, sudden sleepiness, and problems with posture. But that's not all. Uh, The big (laughs) risk is compulsive behavior. Compulsive Uh. gambling, binge eating, shopping, sex, and other behaviors could start or worsen. And if this is happening to you, please talk to your doctor right away. Uh, It can be embarrassing, but it... It's the medication. It is not you. Uh, Nikki, I'm curious on your school project. What did you what did you discover about the agonists? Well, I discovered that they truly are a scary thing. And if you have Parkinson's, you're already dealing with so much in your life. And then all of a sudden now you're on a new medication and and it's sneaky because you may not realize that it is changing your behavior. You just start to do things like you said, compulsive gambling or shopping or binge eating, and it sneaks up on you. And next thing you know, you have a really, really big problem on your hands. And it's scary stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I've heard I've heard stories about relationships, long term marriages breaking up and being severely challenged because all of a sudden they're gambling compulsively when they lost their life savings and just really scary, scary stories. I don't know that that happens frequently, frequently may be the wrong word, but it happens enough that that 
the word agonist makes me nervous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we've had a couple of guests on the podcast that have talked about it. Heather Kennedy and I talked about agonists in an episode last spring. Have you seen my Amazon bill? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> Have you looked at my closet? Everything's color-coded and kind of weird, or it's completely a disaster. There's either one or the other, yeah. Yeah, when I when I do something, I really go in all the way, and I can get lost in it. People were like, why didn't you call me back? <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, I got lost in organizing my belt collection, or I, <laughs> I started researching the secret life of spiders with dewdrop hats, you know, and I get really into something, wow. so... Heck yeah. The compulsive, impulsive behavior is bad, too, when you're out and you don't want to pull the ripcord. So I have to bring a friend with me who's more reasonable, usually, if I go out during a night when my medication is on. Yeah. Yeah. That has been, you know, uno mas, you know, one more hour, one more dance, one more drink. Yeah. No, it doesn't work out too well the next day. (laughs) I love that line. Have you seen my Amazon bill? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I want to be careful because... Uh, Heather, Heather does make it, it, she, she has a great attitude about it, but it it can be very serious. So I don't want people to think we're laughing at the, the effects of the dopamine agonist because it can be a real serious issue for people. Vicki Dillon, uh, who was featured on the GDNF episode last year had really big issues with dopamine agonists. Yeah, I did a television documentary about it back in 2011, which was quite scandalous at the time. It was ridiculous, really, how much it affected people, but it was called Sex, Lies and Parkinson's. Um, And it was about being on the agonist and how much they've changed my personality, which is one of the reasons I was so happy to do, to have brain surgery, to kind of reduce those horrible drugs. Um, But it went down like a bag of shit amongst the Parkinson's community because... One, I'd kind of like, well, let people know what the dopamine agonists do. And I think people who were really affected had either kept it quiet or they didn't want their drugs taken off them or, you know, reduced. But since then, in this country anyway, most people who are newly diagnosed are not put on dopamine agonists at all. I don't know what it's like in Canada or America. Ah, Vicky's so great. So is Heather too, though. And Man, yeah, like, you know, you just really feel for people who are suddenly dealing with this on top of everything else in their lives. Well, and this is really one of those whispered issues in the Parkinson's community. Not everybody's willing to talk about it openly, um, and, and they're, they're not really addressing it. The pharmaceuticals, the researchers, like, there there needs to be some serious research done on this, and, and is the risk worth the reward? Well, and maybe this is a topic uh-huh. we should spend some serious time discussing on the podcast. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think we should work on a whole episode around agonists because it's fascinating stuff, but it's really scary stuff, too. It is. And now that we know that uh, Nikki is an expert in dopamine agonists. (laughs) (laughs) Is there going to be a quiz? (laughs) We have our in-house expert. Yes. (laughs) So we said no to the dopamine agonists. Good news. Good news. What else did you forget to tell me about your conversation with Dr. Squires, honey? <laughs> well, um, uh, I did ask him, you know, we're three years in from the diagnosis. How how am I doing? Well, I mean, you're the, the little limited exam that I can do right now while you're in your on state and doing well um, looks pretty good. Um, admittedly, quite limited exam. Um, I, I'm hearing the increasing struggles with particularly the non-motor and stuff, which is, of course, most people, the main driver of quality of life with Parkinson's is the non-motor aspect of things. Um, I still think that things are progressing, you know, 
in a, in a reasonable manner that I'm not overly concerned via the NSA or something like that. Um, but, you know, we're, we've been, we've been seeing some changes for sure. And I think some of it is the, the neuropathy as well, which may or may not be directly related to the Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we took that away, I think you probably would be doing better than you are, obviously. Um, and the pain is probably flaring up, exacerbating some of your other symptoms. So good news and bad news. He's not considering any of the Parkinson's plus conditions and has ruled out MSA and Lewy body and the other things that can be a bit scarier of a diagnosis. But there's definitely a progression, a noticeable progression, and it's not slowing down necessarily. No, no, it's not. Um, And so that means... More exercise for Larry. That's what that means. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth trying everything, right? That's right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it was interesting to hear him say, you know, things are progressing in a reasonable manner. So that's positive, I guess, right? That's a positive takeaway? Uh, Yeah, for sure. Depending on his definition of reasonable. Reasonable, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I don't think he likes to compare to other things. So based on who I am and what Mm -hmm. the way that I've... You know, my Parkinson's has been progressing. It seems to be on track to what he expects. Not a shockingly fast progression, which would indicate that something else is going on. And I think they're really worried about like if you have major balance issues this early, that would be that would be a, sort of a, a sign that something else was going on. Or uh, so so we've uh, we don't have that at this point. Um, before we hung up, though, we did chat about the growing momentum behind Parkinson's research. We were talking about this yesterday, actually, in in, in terms of clinical trials as a, as a group, and there is a sense that there there's a lot more in the pipeline now than there has been. There's been really a dearth of any research in the past ten years or so about Parkinson's. There haven't been any real new drugs, um, just me too things for the most part recently. And there there is a sense that there's more brewing, and there will be more and more. Um, more creative approaches, like Dr. Kressel is about to start her probiotic trial, for example, for for anxiety. Um, so just looking at things from more of a multifaceted approach. And um, you know, hearing last year at the, I didn't I, I didn't attend the MDS Congress this year, even though it was virtual because the sessions all happened in the middle of the night. Uh, but last year in, in Nice, having people stand up and say, you know, what we've got to we've got to come up with a different approach and let's stop treating everybody the same, and maybe maybe we have to maybe drug combinations are what we need. And if we don't start doing things a bit differently, we may never get anywhere. So hearing people get up in front of an audience of 6,000 specialists and and saying those sorts of things, I think is encouraging. Like, I I believe uh, that we need to start bringing patients in at the beginning stages of research to help develop the, the research projects, to help see them through to help with the recruiting, to help with even interpreting the results, because, or, or even, is it even worth doing? Is it something that we need solved? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is there a, a way that we can standardize that so there's always a seat at the table for a person with Parkinson's on every research project that there is? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of stuff now is is happening under the umbrellas of various consortia in the world. So the Parkinson Study Group is a good example, and even some industry drug trials are under the 
AEGIS of the Parkinson's study group these days. And there's the, the Canadian Open Parkinson Network as well, which is expanding. Um, so, so I think organizations like that will, because I think increasingly people are also realizing that we need to collaborate more. And so there, there are these you know, consortia developing, and, and they think it's, it is important to have patient voices on, on those things. If there's anything I can do uh, as far as research at UBC, you let me know. Of course. Um, and and thank you for becoming a PD Avenger. Finally, it took me a while, but well, no, it's important to have all the voices represented, and I, you know, it means a lot to me. Now I need your picture to put up there so we can you know really make it official. Sounds good. Hey, hey Doctor Squires is a PD Avenger. Oh, yeah. PDAvenger.com. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing how. Even at his medical conferences, doctors are speaking out and they're saying it's been 200 years, people. Maybe we ought to look at new ways of addressing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it's those uh, side conversations that you have at your appointments that aren't really about you, but you're asking him about him and his work um, that really help build the relationship and the trust between the doctor and the patient. I mean, ideally, Dr. Squires and I are going to be working together for like the next 20 or 30 years. Uh, that's a long time. That's a that's a relationship. Um, and I do the same thing with my massage therapist, my physiotherapist, my counselor, my pharmacist. You know, Abe looks out for me. And, you know, he makes sure that if there's any counterindicating drugs that Dr. Squires and I are aware of that. Uh, and he knows my conditions. And he's, you know, ask me how I'm doing. And um, So make friends with your team. Get their email addresses and reach out when you need help. And, you know, most brain clinics also have a nurse's line that you can use, too, if you have questions in between your appointments. You don't have to wait six months to get your questions answered uh, or a year or two years for some people. Uh, and, and Dr. Squires is great. Like, he, he changed my meds. So he's going to call me in six weeks to see how they're doing. And then we'll readjust if we have to. Um, it's, it's a, you know, it's an ongoing, you know, test. Like, everybody's so different with this disease that it's, the medication and the treatments are customized to you. And so you need to have that back and forth discussion uh, and you need to trust your, your neurologist to, uh, to work with you on that. And I know not everybody has that, which is why we did the episode two, we had two, two episodes ago on how to fire your neurologist. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I think it's that time. It's that time of the podcast when Larry and Rebecca check in with each other. Listening back to our appointment with Dr. Squires, I'm reminded yet again, when you hear it in a big list and you're talking about it, one medication at a time, how much medication you're on. And I'm wondering if it's worth discussing if taking that much medication is affecting other things in a negative way. I think it's certainly a valid conversation. I mean, I'm up to 31 pills a day of different prescription drugs, uh, which is a lot uh, by any standard, uh, not as much as some people take and more than a lot of people take. Uh, but, but you know, I'm maxed out on gabapentin, but this is the first thing that I've done to relieve my uh, neuropathy in my feet. That it's like gone. So it's working. Yeah. It works. So that's a quality of life issue. A huge one for you because that's your main complaint. I've been dealing with that for, what, a year? Yeah. 
And it just took, you know, and they slowly give you more and more and more, which is the same thing they do with the the uh, dopamine replacement and everything else is they just sort of gradually build it up until it hits where it needs to go. The sweet spot. And so I'm I'm a big guy. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a triple XL T-shirt like like I, it's a, you know, so it takes more medicine to, you know, to knock out an elephant than it does a mouse. Tell me this. How are you feeling now that you don't have pain in your feet all the time? I feel better that I don't feel the pain. My body is still fighting it because it's still there. It's just, it's just covered. Uh, so I'm still very tired. Uh, I, I, I don't, but I, I feel more like me uh, and not just sort of a pain ball. That's different from what you just said, where you said the the more medication you take, the less you feel like you. So maybe there's a sweet spot where you can feel like you and you're not taking so much medication, which is a way to interpret too much medication. Right. Where it deals with your symptoms and you're still clear and you feel yourself. I just want the, I want to get enough in me that I can, you know, that I, my writing isn't shrinking and my trimmer's not back. And, but, you know, of course, over time, you have to take more in order to combat that. And so that's what's happening now. And so, you know, now it's every two and a half hours we're taking Levodopa. So, uh, and that's, that may be the conversation where we go, uh, maybe we pull that back three hours again, or maybe it's, you know, there, it, it might be too frequent, but then, but then again, like an hour out, I'm starting to feel the, the drop off effect. So, yeah. And because it's progressive and always changing, the medications have to be constantly fluxing with, and your stress level. I mean, we know that stress and the amount of activity affects your symptoms and the speed of progression a bit. Yeah, well, I'm going to take a pill to reduce stress. <laughs> it's going to be a stress remover, a surgical <laughs> with operation. no side effects <laughs> or negative impact on your body. I I don't know, you know, balancing stress and health and work and life and family and all that. It, I mean, it's it is a it's a magic cookie recipe that you got to keep tweaking. You know, sometimes you put a little few more chocolate chips in and sometimes you <laughs> add some peanut butter just for some variety. Extra spice. Yeah. I love you. I love you too. This is When Life Gives You Parkinson's, a Curious Cast podcast. Our story producer is Dila Velazquez, story designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada. Diagnosed with Parkinson's, you're not alone. Parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partner, Spotlight YOPD, the only organization in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young-onset Parkinson's disease. You can find them at SpotlightYOPD.org. The Michael J. Fox Foundation Parkinson's Podcast, hosted by Larry Gifford, available on Apple Podcasts and at MichaelJFox.org. The World Parkinson Congress 2022 in Barcelona, Spain. Go to WPC2022.org for details on the special virtual events that you can begin to participate in right now. And be like Dr. Squires and become a PD Avenger. 
PD Avengers, of course, are ready to help end Parkinson's disease. You should be too. You can join now at pdavengers.com. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you like to listen to your on-demand audio. While you're there, give the show a five-star rating and feel free to comment. You can also engage with us on social media. It's at Parkinson's Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can email us too, parkinsonspod at curiouscast.ca. We also have a new web address. It's parkinsonspod.com. Parkinsonspod.com. And be sure to share the link to this podcast with your friends on email, Facebook, Twitter, or on your blog. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.